Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Today, we're back with another episode with Phil Dian. We'll be talking about crypto commodities and specifically storage rent. What does it mean to pay storage on the blockchain and why do we need it? Welcome back to uh, Phil Dian for this uh, special episode on storage rents. We, I did this uh, episode a while ago with uh, Carl and yourself, Phil, mm-hmm. on plasma and rent, and we kind of lost the second half of that conversation. And now we get a chance to have a full hour or, or whatever this turns out to be uh, on rent, and I'm super excited for that. So welcome, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it's pretty cool. This is the first time I get to speak to you, so I'm looking forward also to digging in on this. Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know. I mean, in the last episode, I guess you already kind of introduced yourself, but it probably wouldn't hurt to do a quick intro. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm Phil Diane. I'm a second year PhD student at Cornell Tech, which is a new campus uh, joint collaboration between Cornell and the Technion in Israel. And I'm part of an initiative called IC3, the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Contracts. And that initiative aims to study these cryptocurrencies and smart contracts that we're building in a principled scientific way. Today, we're going to be talking mostly about rent, but we thought we might start from um, kind of talking a little bit about the larger umbrella topic of crypto commodities. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what a crypto commodity is? So the way we view blockchains is basically as an exchange for resources and a market for resources between people who are offering resources and people who are consuming them. So a typical user making a transaction on Bitcoin uh, could be both offering and consuming such resources. And examples of these resources include hash power on the network, um, storage space in the nodes that are running the network, uh, network bandwidth on all of the nodes that are in the peer-to-peer network, Uh, as well as computation power to process new transactions and to validate blocks. So all of these are sort of the base uh, physical or closely abstracted physical resources that sort of compose a blockchain. Um, And crypto commodities uh, aims to change the way we look at these resources by pricing them sort of as commodities and as we would price resources in the physical world um, and asks how close we can get blockchain systems to those pricing goals. Do we have to do that? Is it like a must do? So in, in Ethereum, for instance, uh, I think is a good example of where there is one market uh, for crypto commodities, which is for computation. I mean, when you send a transaction on the Ethereum network, you pay gas. Gas is what you pay for the computation of running that transaction. Um, you may also pay some gas for storage, but as we'll get into, that's like a one-time fee for eternal storage, which you know, may not be incentive aligned. And um, uh, yeah, so I, I think to have some uh, a working system, you have to pay something for what you're using. But like, as we've seen that the need for paying for everything and paying accurately may like, that's a bit of a sliding scale. I think something where you're not paying anything at all for any of the commodities, you know, it's not going to work at all. So we live somewhere like in, in between paying perfectly for everything and, and paying nothing. But right now, I mean, there's a one-time fee. So does that actually cover? 
what it needs to? I mean, so that fee is almost intended as a DOS protection mechanism just to make sure someone can't cheaply overwhelm the network with transactions. And in the early days of cryptocurrency or in a really simple economic model like Bitcoin, where what you can do with transactions and how you can sort of change the network's state uh, long term based on the type of transactions you're doing is much more limited. Maybe this DOS protection is enough to bound the sort of growth of the state to a point where computation can grow quickly enough to keep up with it. So in some systems, simple models are, are more okay. Um, Ethereum's model is much more complicated because you can directly store things in the state. Uh, there are many different types of transactions. Some transactions do a lot of computation in a smart contract. Some transactions use a lot of storage. Some transactions just contain a lot of data. Um, so you have many different classes of transactions that all affect the system very differently. So you need a richer model for differentiating between them. And this gas model that people are using right now to charge for transactions is sort of almost a sent down from the heavens like gas model, right? It's in the client. What each thing is worth is in the client and the yellow paper and the reference implementation. And people just uh, accept that as somewhat reflective. Um, and maybe it is somewhat reflective in practice. But it's, it's also clear that we need to do a lot more work um, refining this to reflect the real cost to the network. I think it's uh, an interesting piece of history here that Ethereum was originally planned to have what was called chromatic gas, where you mm -hmm. actually pay like different types of gas for different yeah. resources that you're using. So it would be one gas for uh, CPU usage, one for memory usage, one for storage. And then you can actually price them uh, a bit more accurately to what you're actually using. Now it's this sort of hybrid model where... Yeah, it, it, it just comes as a result of running like the initial benchmarks. Yeah, and I think that is like a good, a good intentioned effort in that it sort of addresses the problem that the rates that these things are priced against each other, for example, that storage is priced against computation, don't float, even though they're, they're kind of independent of each other. Like the number of nodes storing state doesn't really have much to do with the number of users who are running the computation. Uh, that has more to do with people who are like looking at the blockchain, maybe light clients, partial syncs, and things like that. So I think that was a good uh, effort in the right direction, but still left open a lot of fundamental issues. Um, one of them, obviously, it's much more complicated to do that kind of like n-dimensional optimization. And the second one, and I think what's more fundamental, is that there is still a problem that you're paying the miners here, and the miners are making these choices, uh, but the miners are not the only actors in the network. So miners, economically rational miners at least, will optimize for the cost that the miners are bearing. Um, and miners are not necessarily storing like highly replicated state or even running censorship-resistant nodes in some cases. So uh, it's, just, it's, it's a mismatch between right now who we're paying and who's like, setting the pricing and who's bearing the cost. It's more fundamental than just uh, separating the, the prices. Did we, so we started sort of, I, I think we just, we mentioned rent a couple times, but right. should we actually define that really clearly? Uh, so storage rent just means that in some way, uh, when you're using storage on the network, whether it be storage in the state um, or, you know, potentially history storage, if we want to make that part of the system incentive compatible as well. Uh, whenever you're using sort of some storage resource, you also have to pay per unit of time that you use it rather than just paying once and having like the network guarantee to you that this storage is available forever. So I think it's also worth talking about the problem of commons in all these systems. Um, economically, a commons is kind of a shared resource um, that a wide community of actors share together and uh, maybe can like locally benefit from exploiting that resource um, in some way that damages that resource a little bit to all the other participants. 
Um, and the problem is if everyone has these local incentives where they're exploiting the commons, eventually the commons loses all of its value for everybody. Um, and you don't have a sustainable model. So this is a problem people have studied in the real world for a long time. But blockchains are also kind of going to run into these kinds of problems because right now many aspects of the system are commons reliant. Uh, for example, light client services. Who provides these light client services? Uh, it's important for those actors to keep these services up and private and scalable and all of these things that cost quite a lot of money. But right now these providers are not getting paid for that. And it's just sort of a volunteer service that's maybe sponsored by a few altruistic community members. Uh, storage is a similar situation where locally the cost to you of storing a few extra things for yourself, especially if you're, if you're a pruning node, is very small. But if the size of the storage gets too large for everybody and nodes are no longer able to keep up with the network, uh, which is sort of the, I guess, uh, Bitcoin maximalist, like dark swan event that, that uh, people, people talk about, um, then everyone could suffer, even people who are not necessarily storing the state themselves. So I think there is a point for just uh, figuring out how to make a sustainable and bounded growth and incentive compatible model uh, that makes sure people are actually rationally incentivized to do the right thing. So right now it sounds like um, the actors are kind of taking, like there's sort of this kicking the, what do they say? Kicking the ball down the road kicking kind of thing. What is it? No, that's kicking the can. Kicking, kicking the can yeah. down kicking the, the bucket is dying. Yeah. <laughs> so they're sort of kicking the can down the road. If if, uh, if we kick the can, we'll kick the bucket. I think. That's <laughs> yeah. the so the and the and the consequences will actually hit sort of future future actors mm -hmm. more than today. And do you feel like do you feel like right now there's there's sort of, I mean, are are almost all of the DApps using this or the the kind of creators using the system? Are they almost like exploiting it in a weird way? Yeah. So if you're a DAP creator right now, you are getting a service uh, storage for probably cheaper than it's worth for the guarantees the system is currently claiming to provide you, that this will be stored forever. Um, so in many ways, yes, every single DAP right now and every single user and every single app is being subsidized sort of by this wow. commons level subsidy of people who are incentivized to run this infrastructure, often for for reasons of altruism, but also sometimes for reasons of incentives outside the protocol, like businesses. Um, so, so yes, this is the case. And it even remains to be seen whether, like how long this can continue, essentially. Um, because new blockchains will always be able to do this. New blockchains will always be able to kick the can and will always be able to look more attractive to DAP developers and to users and to say, look, we have lower fees on this blockchain. Um, but as you get to be one of the larger and more dominant blockchains, you start to lose this ability. Um, so there's a very real risk to dominant blockchains that you, you, at the point where you have to stop kicking the can and introduce a sustainable solution, you'll have a competitor that's happy to like point that out as a weakness. What's, there, what's the timeline on this, though? Do you have any sense? Like, is this something that needs to be addressed immediately? Is this something that like, there's plenty of time to try to fix it? I don't know. I mean, I would open this up for discussion and I would like um, you know, more client developers and more engineers to also provide their input. Um, on what they've sort of been seeing. I've been hearing some complaints start to come in about the size of the state, especially during things like initial fast sync and things like that. Uh, but to me, it's still not clear like exactly where the boundary is and when this problem is going to happen. Um, I try to approach things from the perspective of like in 20 years, if people are doing everything on the blockchain, um, like what will be what will be the problems that we need to have at least started thinking about now so that they don't like look down and say like, oh, wait, we've built this entire system on this shaky uh, infrastructure, and now a lot of people are going to suffer. But I mean, we, we know this from like just seeing general human behavior. It seems like you need to really feel pain 
before you start to really make changes. Yeah, yeah, and you do. So uh, maybe I'm trying to predict the pain and like get people thinking about what changes could be useful um, and yeah. talking about it as broadly as possible. We are actually starting to see some of that pain, like you said. Like um, there's feedback from client developers and users, and like being a client developer myself. Yeah, syncing the state, like just downloading the state is a tremendously hard thing. Like Warp Sync right now, its biggest problem is that it takes so long to download the state snapshot that it's more likely that your peer will go offline before you've downloaded it than it is that you're actually being able to download the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So now like we have to start looking at, okay, uh, we need to like chunk this uh, state snapshot up in chunks and download chunks from different pairs, and then we can like reconstruct them. And this has problems because not all state snapshots are equal. Like they may, might be snapshotted at different points in history, and so now you need to like convey all this extra metadata on like where is this snapshot chunk from, and so you can recombine the entries and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a hard problem. And I've also heard, uh, you know, complaints from some users. Um, there's also real centralization risks uh, in terms of people using sort of ready-to-go infrastructure like Infura, where you can just spin up 10 nodes very quickly. Um, so these are real issues. Um, I want to be careful because I know a lot of people kind of use the discussion of these issues as proof that... Um, I don't know, blockchains cannot scale or there is no sustainable approach or something like that. I mean, these are challenges, absolutely, but they're engineering challenges that we need to address and yeah. they are addressable. So, and it's something that, you know, Parody and Geth and everyone that is working in this field are actively working at addressing. Yep. Uh, I think storage rent is actually um, a hugely beneficial thing to this, but I mean, it's obviously not like uh, an instant fix. Like if we if people start paying for storage, like most people right now would probably pay to store everything they have. Like mm -hmm. we wouldn't actually get rid of all that much state by introducing it. But five, 10 years from now, when like we have five, 10 years more history in the state's mm -hmm. database, like that's when, you know, maybe half of it will actually not be kept up because people, you know, have stopped using those dApps. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ethereum tried to do this in a sort of ad hoc way with the, with the clearing incentives, which is actually what we use in the gas token project to construct these like gas futures. Maybe we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, but it's not really enough of an incentive for people right now. Like in practice, most people are not cleaning up after themselves and um, they're not getting any money back for this. They're just maybe saving gas and other transactions. So, uh, which is pretty hard to use. Like uh, actually... Like, yeah, non-synthetically. Yeah, yeah, it's like, I'm not, I can't just, you know, call self-destruct on this thing and get my money back. It's like, I actually have to do that and then plan out, like, what to use that for in, uh, in, in future transactions. And, like, it's not entirely clear how I get this value back. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, uh, it's extra stuff in your trusted code base, which, like, if you're making back three cents, like, why would you have extra attack surface in your, yeah. in your code base? Yeah. So, uh yeah, it's, it's a, an incentive that has failed to do its job um, and is sort of a hacky way to do uh, what should have been done in the first place. I think it is very valuable, though, that uh, Ethereum has started experiencing these problems and uh, communicating them to people designing other systems. Um, like I know uh, I've, I've had conversations with the Rootstock guys on Twitter who are building smart contracts on top of Bitcoin, and they said they've taken storage rent like very seriously in their system because they've 
looked at the Ethereum incentive model and concluded that it's not sustainable. Um, so I think there's always something to be said for innovation and doing things in a way that works, but maybe is not optimal um, and refining them later. I think uh, before we move on to like maybe some questions around uh, exactly what you're talking about, like how to introduce this and what the UX uh, would possibly be and things like that, let's break it down a little bit what it means practically when we say storage rent and like removing things from the blockchain. Like that's a scary thing to most people. Like what, what does that actually mean? I think it's it's something that I see people getting confused about a lot is this separation between state and the blockchain history. The state database is essentially the the snapshot, the current you know uh, values for all the contracts and accounts uh, as they have progressed through history. Uh, and a common misconception is that uh, the state contains all of history, but it doesn't. Like as a very easy example, I can write a contract that stores an integer, and I can set that to one, and then in a future transaction, I can change it to zero. That one is not any longer anywhere in the state database. Like it's actually removed from the state database on a, on a fundamental like stored on disk level. Mm-hmm. But both of these transactions are obviously still in history, like history as defined as like the block headers and block bodies. So Mm. both one and zero are in block bodies somewhere. So we can still find it somewhere like it's still available, but it's not in state anymore. Yeah. And to make it even more complicated, there are three levels here. There's sort of the level where you store state um, and nothing else, Uh, just block headers. So you can validate, you know, maybe Merkle proofs. Uh, you can store state and full block bodies, so you can do things like look up transactions. Um, this is probably the most common type of node. Um, or you can store state and what's called an archival node, where you also have like sort of a snapshot of state at every time. Basically, all the all the states in between every block. Exactly. And a very common thing is, for example, people from other cryptocurrency communities like Bitcoin saying, like, look at the Ethereum state; it's four hundred gigabytes. And I highly uh, recommend that if you're if you're thinking that that's an accurate statement and you've seen people saying that, like you actually read the code of how an Ethereum node stores and processes transactions and history, because it's very different from how Bitcoin does UTXOs. Um, it certainly shares a lot of commonality, but it's important to understand the distinctions. You just described these different kind of pieces, but where is the where is the storage rent actually happening? Right. So I guess let's let's bring it back to storage rent and and disappearing on the blockchain. Um, so I think when people say disappearing, um, as we've said now, the distinction between state and history, uh, we're talking about different things. Uh, things are not being removed from history, so they're not disappearing from history, um, but they may be being removed from state. Um, and many rent proposals actually have the property that you can resurrect something back into state later as long as you're willing to pay for it. So all rent is really saying is that the state that the network is processing right now uh, is what people are paying for. Uh, if they want to add something back old, uh, in that got pruned later that's old, they can do so. If they want to let things expire and not pay any further, they can also do so. But they should be paying the cost that they're forcing the network to incur. Why would they not pay storage rent on the history? So this is a good question. Um, history incentivization is kind of a separate issue from state incentivization. Um, it becomes a lot more complicated trying to like manipulate history because like th- there is a fundamental property that the blockchain history is immutable. Like you, the 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 way the blocks are constructed is it's a hash of the previous block and 
you know, you do proof of work on that and the proof of work validates that entire chain. So like if you want to change something in history, like you have to go about it in a very different way than changing state, which is really just a database that you can change however you want, kind of. Yeah, and I think in many cases, like normal users don't really need to be storing history and many people don't need to be storing history. So I think eventually the idea would be to get to a system where a lot of history can be pruned by most users um, and then sort of rely on a commons model, at least for now, for history, uh, where you have a few like archive.org or like large organizations that store full history, but you don't need that to validate state. So if you're a normal user, you can, you can do like some sort of headers-like validation or SPV model or a partial sync or whatever you want to do, but you don't need to necessarily download full block bodies from like 10 years ago every time. So that would be one model to get to. And then, of course, we can ask the question of how to incentivize history more robustly. I think so far we've mostly been talking about existing blockchains and how rent could potentially be. We haven't even really talked about how it would be introduced, but we're kind of thinking like, okay, this blockchain exists. This is the problem with it. This is where we need to think of solutions. But do you, like, are you also thinking about when people are building blockchains from the ground up, should they start thinking about this from the start? And if so, how would they do that? I think that's really like a market market slash community fit question. I'm not sure. Um, it depends on what the purpose of your blockchain is. If you want your blockchain to be sort of, you know, really decentralized, censorship resistant, you know, military grade, robust honey badger of a blockchain, then yeah, you need to think about it on day zero. Um, if you're willing to accept some trade-offs in the early days, maybe to gain adoption, I think that's a perfectly valid business decision. Like, who am I to tell you not to spend your money, you know, support propping up some commons? Um, so I think that is a valid decision for many systems. Or do you think it would be easier if you start thinking about it from the beginning in terms of like, I guess technically it would be easier. You wouldn't have to create as many sort of like new kind of add-ons after the fact. You could like build it in from the start. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that It would definitely be technically easier. And there is the risk if you don't think about it, that when you do, you'll have all this backward compatibility to deal with. Um, and you'll have sort of this extra, you know, cruft, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, like we do in the EVM today, for example, when we're going to discuss like UX on EVM. But uh, at the same time, maybe that gives you the competitive advantage over like another project in the short term, and maybe that's worth it for you. So it's a, it's a trade-off to be mindful of and certainly something to think about. Uh, should most blockchains implement rent on day zero? Like, I'm not sure. Um, but I, I do think we should start expecting more, too. I think technically it doesn't matter all that much. But if you introduce it later, as like this discussion is happening within the Ethereum community, for instance, like you're fundamentally changing the expectations and, and sort of the promises that have been told that this is stored forever you know it, it's still stored forever in history but or maybe but it, it's sort of you're changing the way people have to think about things and i think that's the difficult thing that like that's the problem in dealing with legacy it's not necessarily dealing with legacy code or like stapling this on top of that like we can always just refactor the code base and it'll be fine but uh yeah that expectation of people that have joined the community already um, and like we'll join the community in the future. Everything that's been built on it would need to adapt to that. Every right, every project. It would depends have to... on how you define it. So I mean, in some storage rent models, you might say any anything before this block yeah. is grandfathered in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, some storage, like some changes that I've proposed that I kind of like is to sort of make a hard change to the economic model, but not to the 
sort of uh, programming model of Ethereum. So for old storage, it can be like soft grandfathered where it will be pruned and like, res- um, or sorry, it will be stored forever, but users will pay as if they were like resurrecting it um, from history every single time. Mm. So like users will start paying more for old stuff, but everything will still work. This, uh, this uh, sort of disincentivizes, if you just say we're going to grandfather at this point, people will sort of hoard storage for expecting it uh, for later use. Um, so if you say no matter what, on old stuff, you're going to be paying more than on new stuff, but everything's still going to work the same it does today, all users will actually see maybe as a small increase in fees. Um, and then hopefully for the new system, you have like some really clean abstractions that people don't have to spend a lot of mental energy on. When we talk about other challenges or issues with the Ethereum blockchain, often you'll hear kind of the solution proposed is like, yeah, yeah, proof of stake. Proof of stake will take care of this. Um, in the case of storage rent, is there any way that proof of stake could take care of this? No. People sort of like to have a silver bullet solution for things. Um, you know, I don't think proof of stake will necessarily change the dynamics of storage pricing. Uh, it's unclear to me how proof of stake will even look. So there's an open question of will it be like more centralized or more decentralized in practice than mining? And that might somehow affect like the economics of your system. Um, but directly speaking, it doesn't solve the problem. Um, sharding might start to take some steps towards addressing the issue. Um, but sharding needs to come with a sustainable economic model. Otherwise, people are just going to dump data into it. So sharding and rent are kind of coupled in a way. I think. Um, uh- if you're trying to take a sort of extreme viewpoint, some people would probably say that proof of stake can solve the problem because we don't have to rely on as many nodes that we that we can be less decentralized and so, still secure. So like EOS or other blockchains that have proof of stake with like deliberately few validators can say that we accept that these validators have larger machines. I would argue that that's centralization solving the problem, though, not <laughs> proof of work. Uh, and centralization solves all scaling problems. This yeah. is like we know how to scale centralized systems as a community, as a species, as like a research community. We know how to make centralized systems that scale to billions of people. I yeah. don't think that's interesting. Uh, maybe some people do. But uh, to your point of sharding, I think that actually does play in very nicely. So if you're thinking of like states uh, on the main chain growing, then you, you can kind of think of sharding as, you know, in the long term, splitting that state across many shards and no single machine has to have everything. But it still uh, sort of depends on what the sharding model is. And, you know, is it stateless clients? If it's not, then then they still need to run like clients that store something. And uh, yeah, it, it's very undefined exactly what sharding is at this point and, mm-hmm. and, and if it actually will. Yeah, and I'm glad you said the word stateless clients because uh, sort of back last November, uh, the issue of rent was brought up. Um, when I, and, and I first contacted Vitalik um, about Gas Token maybe, you know, a few weeks before that time, I contacted sort of the top people at the foundation and said, like, we're doing this. You might want to reconsider rent. Um, sorry. No, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what happened is sort of the stateless client solution came up, uh, which became the political favorite in the debate because it was much more palatable to a lot of developers and stakeholders uh, than rent was. Uh, which I think is strange because it's actually a larger change to the mental model of every aspect of the system than rent. But anyway, um, my argument would be that stateless clients doesn't really solve this problem because like, the fundamental problem is how do you price data? 
and the data has to go somewhere. Um, and so even in stateless clients, you need a sustainable incentive compatible pricing model for storage in a decentralized system, or you're either going to end up having centralization or bad UX where people like pay, pay for storage because they, they pick the cheapest one or whatever. And then whoops, that's not a sustainable pricing model. And the company's bankrupt in six months, the storage is gone. What do you do? So it's still a problem that needs to be solved sort of no matter what sharding scheme or whatever other, uh, technical enhancements happen to the system let's talk maybe a little bit we mentioned gas token a couple of times uh and uh it was funny anna you you had a story when you first looked at at gas token and and what you thought it was so i thought it was a solution i was like oh wow it's such a great it's it's it solves the problem it it stabilizes it makes faster it's a great and then i spoke to frederick about it and he's like uh yeah it's it's not really a solution it's more like an exploit (laughs) it's taking advantage of the fact that there is no rent. Yes. Can you maybe describe what gas token is? Um, so gas token is a way for users of Ethereum to bank gas in ERC-20 token form. So the way it works is you create gas token at any time with the smart contract by just storing one in some location on the contract. So you store some data in the contract and it gives you a token for each piece of data you store. When you want to spend this token, you send the token back to the contract and it'll delete a piece of data for every single token you want to burn. Now, the way Ethereum works, as we said before, is there's this refund to incentivize people to clean up storage. So you get some amount of gas back up to up to 50% of your transaction refunded by deleting things that were previously stored in storage. Um, and what the original plan was, was this was great. People would have like cleanup functions in their contracts and uh, things would be clean on the chain. So what gas token actually does is it takes advantage of the fact that this refund is denominated in gas and not ether. So you put the storage in at a low gas price, pay some amount of gas for the storage. Then when the gas to ether price is high of a transaction, let's say you're trying to buy an ICO or like front run a decentralized exchange or blocks are just really full, you burn a bunch of gas token and you get the refund back at that higher gas price saving you more money. So as long as you can do a transaction that's not time sensitive uh, at a 2x cheaper gas price than the one you need sort of to be time sensitive, it's worth it to do this arbitrage. Did you start with the intention of actually fixing it or creating a solution? And then you ended up just sort of finding this cool way to... Not at all. Not at all. So um, we were doing a paper that's probably going to come out in the next two months or so on uh, Ether Delta arbitrage. So looking at the games people are playing, uh, arbitraging Ether Delta how this is different from traditional exchanges and sort of all these conclusions that we can draw um, from this. And uh, during this, we started arbitraging EtherDelta ourselves experimentally. Uh, For a while, we were the only ones doing it. Then we posted a blog post on the weaknesses of decentralized exchange, talked about like EtherDelta, like the early 0x designs and things like that. Then after we posted that blog post, of course, people emailed us, can you sell the bot? Like blah, 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 blah. Um, but within you know, a, few, a few days, suddenly there were like a handful of people, like five to seven, I don't remember, a handful of people also competing for these arbitrage opportunities. Oh. So people picked up on it very quickly, uh, and it sort of formed this competitive marketplace that we started studying. So there's a lot of profit in these arbitrage opportunities, but the problem is that it's only the first person who gets included in the blockchain who gets to make this profit. So anytime an opportunity would sort of come across the network, you'd have these seven people basically do an auction where they'd be bidding up each other's gas prices until the point where it was like no longer profitable for any of them uh, to do the opportunity. So the winner would make like a little bit of money, but barely any. It was a pretty efficient marketplace, actually. And so we were studying this and we started losing to all of these guys. And we were like, where can our next edge come from, right? One of my colleagues, Lawrence Breidenbach, uh, he's a very, very good expert on the, the internal details of the EVM, and he's worked with a lot of low-level EVM debugging. 
Um, and he sort of uh, remembered an idea that Vitalik had had a while ago back in EIP 35, uh, which is to do arbitrage, to like store gas when it's cheap and burn it when it's expensive, to lower our gas cost relative to our competitors. So for the same transaction that they're paying 200,000 gas, we pay 100,000 because we use gas token to get a refund for half the transaction. Um, and we buy that gas token like at night when it's dirt cheap. So we use it at like 2,000 to 3,000 times higher prices than we bought it. So it's like insanely profitable to do. Um, so we started doing this, started winning for a while. Then we launched Gas Token, and within you know some time, we noticed other people start adapting to this strategy. So the full details of this work are are sort of being finalized now and are going to be released soon. Um, but this was how we originally came up with the idea. Is it going to be in a paper? Like, how are you going to be communicating that? It's going to be a paper, yeah, probably yes. Um, maybe a blog post before it's, a paper too. I don't know. It's maybe. really exciting. It's, it's very yeah. cool. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, back to the storage thing, like the reason you can do this is because you're not paying a time cost for that storage. It's like you're you're buying up a whole block worth of gas and then you can just sit on that forever. It doesn't cost you anything extra to sit on that for however long you want. Mm -hmm. And then you can like return this gas, uh, quote unquote, um, at some future point. But if there is a rent model, and this is why it's an exploit of the lack of rent, <laughs> if there is a rent model, then you actually need to pay a time cost as well. And it, it like in a in a game like the decentralized exchange game, it might still be profitable. Like yes, paying definitely. that mm-hmm. rent is still mm-hmm. probably profitable. Yep. But it you can't like buy it today, sit sit in on it for like six months, and then use it at an ICO or something. Well, you, yeah, it you may can, be, but there's a fee. There is yeah, a fee, yeah, yeah. and it, it's uh, it's at least paying for the pollution it causes if you want to have gas token in in such a model. So there's the upside of that. Uh, in terms of gas token itself, introducing rent uh, also has a more severe consequence, which is breaking the fungibility of the token because right now it uses a storage pool, so it's not like each token is associated with like a location, like. You store a location in the top of the list and you delete one from the bottom, right, when you, when you free it. So uh, if storage locations start being valued based on, like, how long they've been sitting there, uh, suddenly there's no more fungibility in the token. Like, you could buy a token that's worth, like, X gas today and it's worth, like, X minus Y gas tomorrow. So what's going to happen to gas token? I don't know, but I am excited to find out. You're just going to let it keep <laughs> going. Letting it ride, yeah, Are yeah, you guys so. going to do anything else with it? Are you going to introduce any other aspects to we it? have a lot of other plans for more crypto commodities work so we want to talk about uh, things like uh you know native futures and other commodities uh, we want to explore the space of other cryptocurrencies like bitcoin um, so watch out for more announcements on those uh, you can follow project chicago on twitter and we're always open to collaboration and discussion uh, with researchers and industry you've been talking about this for a little bit of time um what have you actually already proposed or what have you already suggested people do? Um, so there are some concrete proposals, mostly by Vitalik on ETH research that are being discussed. And uh, I welcome people to come join that conversation on the ETH research forum at like ethresearch.ch. There are also some old EIPs going back to 2016 when this problem was originally identified trying to solve this. Uh, they failed because of political reasons. So as we've been saying, the, the, the risk... Uh, to not being able to deliver a solution in a timely fashion is very real and to kicking the can down the road. So this has been known since 2015, really, this issue. And uh, there have been proposals, and I, I suggest people read them for historical value, but I think the newest ones are on ETH research, um, and they mostly involve sort of having this model with resurrection of contracts um, and providing users an abstraction, which is just sort of a simple TTL slider. 
So all we want the user to be able to do is pick how long they want their, their smart contract to live, and then it'll live that long. Uh, other users of the contract can see how long it's living. Uh, then how rent is paid is sort of up to the application developer. They have to decide whether they want to have a DAO do it, or they want to just prepay for five years, or just rely on like any of their users to pay it. So exactly what model they want to use. Um, so I highly suggest people come and comment on those proposals, and let's have a more, more detailed discussion about it. Bringing this discussion up a little, little um, more general again, like to the crypto com- commodities points, um, there's simultaneously an ongoing discussion and, and a very deep desire to have full node incentivization. So if people like Google full node incentivization, they'll find a bunch of discussion around this, and there's tons of proposals on what to do and like how do you actually incentivize and pay someone to run a full node running a full node you know serves a lot of purposes that we've talked about here today like keeping history or or, uh, serving like clients especially so that's a a thing that we will have to do at some point in the near future because we already see exactly like phil was saying uh, earlier that we're starting to rely very heavily on centralized services like infura like almost no one is running a node anymore and that's you know a problem uh, the fix is running like clients. But then if everyone starts running like clients, who's serving them? And, you know, it, it, exactly, yeah, yeah. like uh, there's not a good answer to this. And even I'd argue Infura is kind of a commons model right now because I'm not I'm not sure if they're even making maybe they're making a profit on. No, end, definitely but, not. <laughs> but uh, I mean, that's a lot of infrastructure to be serving. And I think a lot of why they're doing it is as a service to the Ethereum network because they believe in the growth and the long term potential yeah. of this and building the infrastructure. But that's still a commons model that we're talking yeah, about. Definitely, um, I think they've they they recognize this problem that people can't run a full node, and so they they want to see Ethereum grow. They want to see Ethereum be successful, and so are donating resources. Like it's a very goodwill, nice effort of them, but it is still a centralization of the blockchain. <laughs> and also, um, that goodwill stuff is awesome. But like, is that sustainable in the long term? As you start to have more pressures, more yeah, of, of course not. Like, of course, it's not sustainable. So that's like, yeah, I think we really need to have a good discussion about this. And I think all of this stuff links very closely together with like full node incentivization. So in introducing storage rent and paying full nodes, like that that's a thing we haven't talked about. It's like if you charge users, DAP developers or the people who deploy contracts for rent, where does that money go? Previously, like it's gone, like when you deploy something today, all the money goes to the miner and then it's done. So when in, in a rent model, like where does that money go? It could go to full nodes potentially, but it's sort of yeah undefined a little bit. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I think uh, thinking about full node incentivization is definitely something we want to do in Project Chicago. We have a few answers, but no great ones. Um, so, you know, the question right now is sort of um, what service do full nodes really provide that can be measured economically? Uh, so just paying full nodes, like you always have the civil problem, so you can't really pay them per IP. You also have, you know, other services that you can pay them for, like maybe relaying, but maybe this is asymmetric where like miners full nodes have advantages over non-miners full nodes. So I think uh, the question of how to incentivize full nodes is very much unsolved and very important. The way I see potentially approaching a solution is to break down the services they provide and like instead of paying for full nodes let's like maybe stop thinking about that model and start separating them into like what are the useful services and what's the most robust way to get those services um so maybe the people who are doing the p2p relay 
don't actually need to be the same people who are storing the state, right? Like a node currently does both of these for the, for the network, but you could imagine a really fast router network uh, doing relays where the hardware was specialized for doing relays or something like that, and full nodes being sort of state-specialized machines. Um, and as someone who participated in the network, you could decide, like, am I willing to trust a relayer and only, like, validate storage? Do I need to participate in both trustlessly, or what is my threat model, and how do I want to participate? Um, in hopefully a way that you'd get paid for the services provided. Um, so we do have a proposal also on ETH Research uh, for incentivizing Relay, a pretty practical scheme to do that. Uh, this problem was also identified in an older paper uh, on Bitcoin and Red Balloons back in, I think, 2013 or 2014, so some like very long time ago. In terms of paying for storage, I think that needs to be a whole separate market that's built. Um, and it's an open question of how best to do that. Uh, definitely one we have some ideas on that we're writing up. So we welcome anyone who wants to collaborate. I've had some thoughts on incentivizing full nodes to serve light clients, because that's a case like you're talking about where, you know, identify what service exactly they're providing mm -hmm. and who is providing it. And in a light client model, it's actually... Like a light client is making a request to a specific node with a node ID and like it's easy to attach an address to this specific, you know, network request that is being served to a light client. Mm -hmm. um, so you could potentially do something like opening a state channel with a full node, do a bunch of like light client requests back and forth, close it down and get paid two cents for having served that light client. Yeah, I haven't uh, actually thought as much about light client incentivization personally. It's definitely also a really important one, like you say. Uh, I could think of several interesting schemes. Like it could be the case that you have light clients that like let users pay for like let's say priority access. Like they get relayed faster or something like that, um, or maybe like allow richer queries. The hard part with all kind of pay for paper light client is there's always the onboarding issue of like this person doesn't have any ETH and they want to use a light client. That is also a hard UX problem to solve. But I think light clients of all things, like you said, because there is this kind of direct communication channel, are maybe like the easier ones to come up with schemes for in the long term. And we, we definitely need to do that, too. You, we've talked mostly about Ethereum and storage rent. We've, you've sort of touched on Bitcoin a little bit. But are there other, like, are there other blockchains that you're also looking at closely? We're looking at every blockchain. So like none of this work is blockchain specific. Um, we're doing work for Bitcoin. So one of the things that I think is going to be a next step in Project Chicago is figuring out how to construct sort of the Bitcoin fee equivalent of gas token, where people can hedge against uh, Bitcoin fee increases um, and things like that. So our point is to demonstrate that these markets, uh, these, whether they're secondary markets, whether they're sort of extra protocol, like uh, decentralized protocols, or whether they're in protocol markets, these markets are inevitable and people will always be able to sort of uh, trade these resources across time. And we're planning to show that Bitcoin is not at all uh, sort of exempt from these problems of storage. Uh, they just sort of take different forms, like let's say the size of the UTXO set. Um, but there's still the very same problem of like what resources are being exchanged and how much do they cost. So going back a little bit to the UX question of like actually what users would see. So right. there's like two kind of top level users or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Developers and people who are using dApps. And uh, from a developer point of view, you you deploy something and then you pay you know the storage fee somehow what's the idea for how you actually pay them? 
Um, this is a good question, and it's it's far from a resolved one. Definitely, I've heard people who have thoughts on this. Um, and one model I like is sort of that anyone can pay the contract's rent, like the contract can decide who can pay the contract's rent. Um, so this can just be any user of the contract. Uh, it can be the developer themselves prepaying for a while, or it can be like a DAO that sort of uh, makes scheduled payments in like certain sizes or has voting on what size payments to make or whatever it may be. So I think no matter what, as a developer, you kind of have to uh, either think about the sustainability of your contract if you really want it to be permanent and like if the fee model changes, how do I keep paying for things? Or you can sort of accept that these are experimental systems and if you maybe have to make like a breaking change later, uh, it won't be the end of the world for some some use cases. You could also like build, like if you think about rent from from day one, you could sort of build into the contract that as you make interaction, like do interactions with this contract, make transactions to it, it, it like directs a small portion of a fee into like, uh, storage rent payments. So it sort of, it pays for itself as long as it has users. Yeah. So actually one of the interesting backwards compatibility schemes that Vitalik proposed at some point is for, for old contracts. Every time someone uses an old contract, they have to pay what it would cost to top up the rent from what it is now to making that entry survive for five years uh, or making that contract, sorry, survive for five years. Um, and if they don't, that means no one's cared about the contract in five years and it can probably safely be destroyed. Yeah. Um, if they do, then it'll maybe be a little bit more expensive to use. But if it's seeing constant use, you're only ever paying that small incremental difference. So it should never actually be like a huge burden on any single user. And then from the user's point of view, um, you know, there might be trust issues around this. We're already sort of covered that, you know, you can resurrect a contract from the past is probably what's going to happen because, you know, you just pay a little higher fee. But um, it still might be a scary thing of like thinking that this contract will disappear. And like, when do I need to start paying more for this or or what's going to happen here? Um, and this this uncertainty around like... Uh, what's the lifetime of this contract that I'm using? Yeah, so the abstraction that I hope users will see at least is just sort of a TTL for their contract. So like how long does this have left with like everything that depends on it? Um, and then they won't really have to pay attention to that unless it gets like to some low level where they're suddenly alarmed. Um, and then sort of how do contracts pay the rent model will be something like, uh, you know, doing a security audit today where like it'll be somewhere in your white paper, you'll have like two paragraphs about how you plan to pay rent and then like, Someone will come take a look at it and the users can go investigate that if they want to, or they can just trust that you figured it out like they do for pretty much every other aspect of the contract today. So I don't think much should actually change from a UX perspective for most users and devs. Uh, I agree with you that it's a very scary change to the mental model, especially as a developer who's used to the, the old one. But I think thinking through how it would actually look and all the failure cases, it looks a lot less scary than, than you'd think initially. It's, it sounds very much like your sort of work right now is, is about kind of educating and getting a conversation going around this. Yeah. What do you see, like, how, what kind of techniques are you using to kind of reach out to the community? I know you've, we've talked about the proposals, but what is, what is your group doing? I mean, we're trying to demonstrate, like you said, no, no pain, no change, right? So like gas token was partially intended to bring the pain a little bit, and that's why it's a deployed, uh, you know, working product on the chain. So hopefully that kind of... Uh, you know, crypto economic evangelism uh, is effective. Uh, if not, I am speaking on as many panels and conferences as, uh, you know, I can possibly have time for, given and that podcasts. I'm a student uh, and podcasts. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, 
Beyond that, it's just about trying to convince, I think, the right people in the community who can themselves start to disseminate the message and like just propagate it out from there. Um, that this needs to be at least something we're thinking about. Um, like we said earlier, it's not necessarily something that's like things are burning down. We need to figure it out now, but we should start having a conversation about like what the best UX for this is. Very cool. Yeah. On that note, I think we we can wrap up. It's been a super interesting episode, and thank you very much for uh, having this conversation. With yeah, us. always a pleasure. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>